Well, turn with me this evening to Matthew chapter 12. New Testament scriptures, the first gospel, and Matthew chapter 12, as we have made our way through for these Sunday nights and enjoyed these studies in the gospel of Matthew. So Matthew chapter 12, and we'll read this evening verses 22 through 37. Dale will preach for us next week while I'm away. Thankful for that. And we'll look at Matthew chapter 12 this evening and the rest of the chapter uh, once I'm back. So beginning at verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good. And its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Amen. We'll end our reading there, and let's pray and ask for God's help. Lord, again, we pray, as Rick did just a moment ago, that you would help me in the preaching of the word, fill me with your spirit, and help us in sitting under the preaching of the word to hear, hear you speaking in the scripture, not just human words tonight, but what you would say. Help me to give the right explanation, and may the Spirit give us wisdom to apply, and may the voice of God be what reigns supreme tonight, and may we bow before that voice and hear you and love you, and worship the Jesus that's here in this chapter, and love and serve him as his people. Help us to be followers of Christ because of the word tonight, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, the context of these two chapters, 11 and 12, as we've been making our way through them, is this rising opposition to Jesus's authority. He has established that in his preaching. He has established that in his 
actions. And now as he goes around Galilee in the north and preaches the good news of the kingdom and manifests the power of the kingdom, as we saw already in the reading tonight, we begin to see people making different responses to Jesus. Sometimes those responses are good that people believe. And even if they, like John the Baptist, maybe doubt or waver a bit through the words of Christ, they're established in their faith and they're great in the kingdom of God. But sometimes people respond negatively to Jesus. They resist his claim. And in the case of the religious leaders, as we'll see them in action tonight, they may, through their false teaching, even obscure a true vision of God. They set up their traditions of men that we looked at uh, last Lord's Day evening when we were in Matthew. And, and, th- and they put this human straitjacket on the truth and power and grace of God uh, that causes people to lose sight of who God really is. But Jesus has come to be the coming of God himself to his people, the return of the king, so to speak, to swipe a title from uh, an author much better than I. But the king in their presence has come to say, this is God's truth, and this is God's reign, and this is God's time. And that, that true light shines as the Savior makes his way through the region of Galilee. He shines in his authority. And some begin to perceive it. We see some uh, starting to catch sight of just who Jesus is. But as that true light shines, it elicits this hostile response. So let's just go through the passage tonight. Let's see what the Savior says, how some begin to grasp it, but how others are hostile towards it. And and this section particularly will focus on these hostile disputes with Jesus. So beginning in verse 22... They bring to Jesus a demon-possessed man who's both blind and mute, and we read that Jesus heals him. So it continues immediately that theme of authority. Jesus' authority is on display. His authority over darkness, he can cast out demons. His authority over creation, he can heal the body, he he can create health where health is not there, and his healing is on display, or his authority is on display. Now, what's interesting about this event is it is reported as a healing. Verse 22, Jesus healed him. And yet, the discussion that flows out of it will focus on this as an exorcism. The the Pharisees say it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And we find those two sometimes bound up together in Jesus' miracle stories. There will be a healing that comes because a demon is thrown out, or there's demon possession, and it manifests itself in some kind of symptom, psychosomatic or, or even physical symptoms. Now, how that works out medically is not explained. The, the scriptures don't give us the explanation there of how those two uh, overlap. I don't, I don't think this is necessarily the, oh, that's just an old mindset that, that falsely attributed all medical diseases to demon possession. There's enough scriptural data that recognizes illness for what it is, the result of living in a fallen creation. How they work together, though, is just not always, in fact, not ever, fully explained 
in these miracle stories. And part of that is because the emphasis here in this passage is not so much, hey, how did this happen? We, we, we get a very quick report of the miracle. The emphasis is on the confrontation that results. As Jesus does this miracle, according to verse 23, the people are astonished and say, could this be the son of David? The crowd, seeing Jesus' authority on display, is beginning to draw the right conclusion. Now, the way the, the, the question is phrased, it sounds like there's a little bit of skepticism there. But if you remember when John the Baptist sent the report to Jesus or sent the messengers to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we wait for another? What did Jesus say? He said, go back and tell John what you see, that the deaf hear, the blind see, the lame leap, that when these miracles happen, you should conclude that I am the Messiah. And that is exactly what this crowd is starting to do. The phrase there, son of David, that is a popular messianic title. It focuses on the idea that Jesus is the ideal king. David's reign was a golden age, and God promised that one day one of David's sons would sit on God's throne forever. And whoever that eternal king would be, that phrase, son of David, was used to describe him. So Jesus is beginning to fit the profile of the ideal messianic eternal king. So just from the get-go, while the chapter will be dominated by disputes, there are still those who see, such as the power of God. Now, as we come into verse 24, we see that the Pharisees are not happy with the crowd reaching this conclusion. If the crowd is starting to call Jesus the Messiah, well, then the Pharisees better put an end to this. And, and keep in mind, so much of this is, is bound up with the Pharisees' view of themselves as those who will keep Israel on track, especially on track to regain God's blessing and to bring in God's time of salvation. If the people are starting to follow a false teacher, then God's blessing is under threat. And so the Pharisees need to get uh, the people back on track. And so they make this accusation. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And we've actually seen this phrase before, Beelzebul, being used uh, to refer to the chief demon. It's, it's a very popular name in the Gospels and in the time of Jesus uh, for describing the chief demon, whom we also call Satan or the devil. Again, interestingly, not crystal clear where that title comes from, whether it comes from the story in 1 Kings that uses similar language or not. Nonetheless, in Jesus' day, it is a common way of referring to the devil. So the Pharisees are convinced Jesus not from God. And if he's not from God, well, there's only one other place he could be getting his spiritual power. It must be coming from Satan, from the enemy of God. And by the way, later Jewish writings, the writings of the rabbis, uh, will charge, th this charge lived on, is what I'm trying to say, in Jewish writings. So later Jewish writings charged Jesus as a magician who led Israel astray by his black arts. So among those who did not become Jesus' followers and, and codified Israel's tradition, 
that approach to Jesus lives on uh, in their writings that Jesus led Israel astray, and that's why uh, he came to the end he did. And according to the Mishnah, again, these later Jewish writings codifying the oral tradition, uh, they identify sorcery as a capital offense. So he kind of got what was coming to him in the eyes of those unbelievers. And the accusation here in the gospel story is to destroy Jesus's credibility. Again, many of the people are somewhat God-fearing. You know, they, they know the Torah, they know the law, they, they want God's blessing uh, on their nation and people again. They want God to return uh, to Israel. So if, if the Pharisees can discredit Jesus and make the people afraid of following him, then that will help their cause. Now then as we come into verses 25 and 26, Jesus begins to respond to the Pharisees. Interestingly, verse 25 says Jesus knew their thoughts. Now, according to verse 24, uh, the accusation of Beelzebul is something the Pharisees actually say. So, so did he hear their words or did he hear their thoughts? Well, there's probably a little bit of both. He knows the chatter. But when we get to verses 30 and 32 and, and we talk about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, there's where Jesus discerns what's really in their hearts. Uh, it's not just a matter of them trying to discredit him. There is something they are doing against God in making this accusation. So Jesus turns to them. He hears the chatter. He knows what's in their hearts. And he's going to address this charge. Interestingly, Jesus' first response is really a common sense argument. Why would Satan attack his own forces? If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand. Why would Satan instigate civil war in his own kingdom of darkness? And notice, by the way, that Jesus does use the word kingdom there in referring to uh, Satan's activity. Satan has a kingdom, so to speak. I'm not getting too detailed or, or, or mystical here. I just mean Satan has a, has a reign. He has power. He has those he tries to influence and, and keep enthralled to him. God has a kingdom. God has a reign. God has power. And right now, Satan's kingdom is being invaded by that rival power. Satan isn't taking down his own kingdom. His kingdom is being invaded from the outside. And so Jesus makes that common sense argument. Then the next argument in verse 27 is essentially this. Well, what about your exorcisms? He says, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, well, by whom do your people drive them out? So notice, it's just kind of assumed that there are other exorcisms taking place. And I know when we come to the Gospels and see Jesus and the disciples doing this, it's easy to assume they're the only ones. But the scriptures itself actually refer to other groups of people who perform exorcisms. In fact, the disciples ask in one instance, hey, we, we saw someone casting out demons, uh, but they don't travel with us. What do we do about them? Jesus says, leave them alone. They, they're doing it in my name. So if they're not against me, they are with me. In Acts 19, I believe it's the seven sons of Sceva, isn't it, who, who try to cast out a demon on the basis of Jesus' name. Now, they're not Jesus' followers, and so the demons essentially mock them. But you can see that the attempt is made there to cast out demons. And Jesus basically says, hey, if you do it, why would you assume that my exorcisms 
are satanic. If God gives power to defeat Satan's kingdom, why are yours good and mine bad? Now the question I had as I read this passage was this though. If the exorcisms aren't unique, if other groups perform these exorcisms, why does the crowd think that Jesus is the Messiah based on them? If exorcisms are somewhat common, why would the crowd see Jesus casting out demons and healing and say, well, he must be the Messiah. He must be the son of David. And I think this is a good explanation. Let me read you this quote. There is no record in the existing literature of anyone else who carried out exorcisms on such a scale and with such decisive authority as opposed to the often bizarre rituals to which other exorcists resorted. So if I said, as I've said, there's, in, there's evidence in the Bible, references to other people doing exorcisms. There are some historical records that have come down to us of other people who are miracle workers or exorcists in this time. But especially in those uh, records from outside of the Bible, as this quote indicates, it was often very bizarre rituals. References, I think, to a guy named Honey the Circle Drawer, who, who had all these unique, you know, bizarre rituals that he would do for casting out demons. Jesus doesn't do that. He speaks a word. And Jesus doesn't have isolated incidents. Jesus does it wide scale. Wherever he goes, he is banishing demons, banishing sickness, banishing darkness. And so I think when you see how Jesus goes about it, the authority of his words and the extent of his power, the people can only conclude, okay, something different is going on here. And that is what Jesus wants the people to realize. Hence verse 28. But if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is saying, when you see this authority, you should conclude God's spirit is here. And if God's spirit is here, then the kingdom of God has come. And let me say just a moment, uh, say something for just a moment about the significance of Jesus saying, the Spirit of God is how I drive out demons. Why highlight that? Why not just say power? Why not just say, you know, presence? Well, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God is tightly tied to the last days, to the arrival of God's kingdom to the coming of God's salvation. It's there, I think, in the Exodus narrative. You know, I'm going to go, I'm going to send my angel ahead of you. He'll, he'll lead you to the promised land. And later, commentary on that in Isaiah interprets that as a reference to the Spirit of God. So it is by the Spirit of God that God makes His presence known. God's Spirit is how God is present among His people. And one of the promises of the prophets is that one day God's spirit is going to come and he's going to live with you forever. He's going to be with you in a way that he's never been with you before. When you read the Old Testament, you read the tabernacle, what, what do you often find about God's presence? Sometimes it's there and everybody can see it. Sometimes it's not. 
When the people begin to sin and fall into false worships, see this especially in the book of Ezekiel, some of the visions God gives Ezekiel, the, the Spirit of God is there in the temple, but it's so desecrated that God has to move out of his own house. And he leaves the temple, and he goes and sits on the mountain, and then he leaves the mountain and he goes into the east, which is on the one hand judgment, God is leaving you because of your sin. On the same time, it's mercy because they're going to go into the east in exile. You see God's Spirit come, God's Spirit go. Uh, in the Old Testament, only certain people were anointed with the Spirit uh, regularly. The prophets, the priests, the kings. That's why we refer to them as the anointed offices, and thus a picture of the Messiah. But there's one uh, incident, I believe it's in the book of Numbers, where the Holy Spirit kind of breaks out in the tabernacle and, and, and a group of people start prophesying. And Moses' family come and say, hey, aren't you going to put a stop to this? And Moses goes, I wish that the Spirit was poured out on everybody. You see, it's this anticipation that we see the Spirit now, but one day God's going to come and it's going to be bigger. It's going to be different. And when that Spirit comes, that's how we'll know the kingdom has come. That's how we'll know salvation has come. That's how we'll know the days when God fulfills His promises have come. And that, by the way, is why you have in Acts 2, that key passage from Joel 2 being cited. There in Joel, God says that in the last days I'm going to pour out my spirit. And the old will prophesy, and the young will prophesy, and the slaves will prophesy, and the free will have the spirit, and the men will have it, and the women will have it. It's just going to be poured out on the community in a way that it's never been done before. And when the Spirit comes down on the day of Pentecost and all those people talk in tongues, Peter is able to see, all right, the risen King Jesus, he's gone up into heaven and he's poured out the Spirit that he promised he would send. And that's how we know he really is the risen King. And that's how we know the day of salvation has come. So when Jesus says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's not just throwaway language. The people knew when God's Spirit comes, God has come. And when God has returned to us, the kingdom of God is here. God's going to return to his people one day, and he's going to do it by means of the Spirit. And so Jesus says, you should make that conclusion, that the presence of God is has come. My reign is here. My authority is here. The time of salvation is here. It, it, it's come upon you, Jesus says. And the word there could be translated caught up with you. Uh, it, it's kind of broke, broken out upon you. And especially with reference to the Pharisees, with, with their controlled world of tradition and their narrow way of, of understanding things. God has come in. He's broken the mold. He's turned everything upside down. And the only response that the people should make is to repent and believe. And Jesus will touch on that in just a moment. Right before he does, notice verse 29. He's continuing to make his argument that uh, this isn't demonic activity, this is God's activity. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. This is language taken from Isaiah 49. The prophet says, Can plunder be taken from warriors, or captives be rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors, 
and plunder retrieved from the fierce, I will contend with those who contend with you, and your children I will save. So Jesus is saying the Spirit of God is here, the person of God is here. I've come not to be in league with Satan, but to conquer him, to tie him up and to bind him, and to plunder his goods. And according to Isaiah, plundering his goods is setting free the captives. Jesus has come to break Satan's power and freed those enthralled to sin, to crush the head of the serpent and to bring in God's reign. And so, as I've said, the only right response to that then is to recognize what God is doing and to join Jesus' side. And so having answered the accusations, now in these last verses, Jesus turns on the Pharisees and makes it crystal clear what they need to do or they are in great danger. Verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, by the way, here Jesus uses the more exclusive language. If you're not with me, you are against me. In Mark 9.40, he uses more inclusive language. He says there, if you're not against me, then you are with me. Now, why phrase it both ways? How do we make sense of the two passages? Well, in Mark, when he says, if you're not against me, you're with me, that is the passage I just referred to, where the disciples have seen someone casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they want to stop him because he doesn't travel with the twelve. And so Jesus is saying, no, if, if he's casting out demons in my name, he's, he's with me. He can't be doing that and be against me. So don't forbid him. Here, though, Jesus is facing hostility. So, so in the other context, it's people viewing things too narrowly. Jesus wants to expand their focus. Here, he's dealing with hostility. So he needs to use the more exclusive language. If you are against me as you are, if you are not with me, in terms of being loyal to me, well, then you are against me. You put the two phrases together, and Jesus is basically saying, there's no middle ground here. You are either with me, or you are against me. The different passages may reflect a different emphasis, maybe your glass half full, glass half empty type analogy. But the end result is, Jesus is excluding middle ground. And especially with reference to the Pharisees, then, he introduces this idea of the unpardonable sin. Verse 31. Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. If you speak a word against the Son of Man, you will be forgiven, but if you speak against the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. How do we make sense of these words? The blasphemy against the Spirit, what's often called the unpardonable sin, especially as God's people, we always want to ask ourselves, okay, I haven't gotten close to this sin, I, I hope and pray. Now look, this has been a long discussion in the history of Christianity. I don't pretend in a few minutes on a Sunday night, we'll settle it. But I do think we can give some clarity so that we can actually have some takeaway from Jesus' word. So here's what I offer you to make sense of these well-known verses. First, I think the context is key. I don't think we just need to lift these verses out of the story and say, hey, beware of the blasphemy of the Spirit. I think the story where they are set tells us a really good idea of what Jesus, is mean, Jesus means 
by the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is how you know God's kingdom has come. And instead of recognizing the work of the Spirit, they are attributing it to the work of Satan. So at basic, to blaspheme the Spirit would be to attribute God's true work, God's kingdom work, God's salvation work, to the work of the devil. It would, you know, a strong, informed repudiation of the claims of Christ. So interpreters, I believe, have wisely pointed out, we, we are not talking here even about the big sins, right? To, you know, breaking the Ten Commandments, a murder or an adultery, God forbid. Those things are heinous, they're horrible. But we aren't even on that level. Those kinds of sins can be forgiven. You see people in the Bible being forgiven of those sins. I don't think, I think we can therefore also rule out of the idea of ignorance. That, it, that if you don't know the gospel and for a season reject the gospel. Or maybe even for a season you are opposed to the gospel. You hear the claims of Christ and you initially reject them. We shouldn't put that in this category. Again, we, Jesus says what? You can blaspheme me and you'll be forgiven. You can speak a word against me and you'll be forgiven. Father, forgive them, he prayed on the cross. They don't know what they are doing. So the threshold of forgiveness in the Bible is massive. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.13, I obtained mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. There, there is a sense in which Paul says part of my opposition to Christ arose from ignorance. And God showed me mercy. Peter will deny Christ and will be forgiven. So what I'm trying to do is say, let's just make sure we, we don't make the category too broad. I don't want to shrink it down, okay, and take all the teeth out of the passage. We don't want to do that. Some do that and say, hey, the only way you can commit this is to see a miracle of Jesus and say that Satan's doing. And since he's gone, we can't do that, so you can't commit the unpardonable sin. I don't want to do that. I don't want to take all the teeth out of the passage. And I don't want to overly expand it either and trouble conscientious souls. I think Calvin has a really good statement on helping us understand how this works. Let me read you his comment. Thus there are many in the present day who have the greatest abhorrence to the doctrine of the gospel. And yet, he says, if they knew it to be the doctrine of the gospel, they would be prepared to venerate it with their whole heart. Calvin is talking here about people like Paul. I think he's got a very good point. They are opposed to the gospel, but they are still in a state of ignorance. And if they knew just how good the gospel was, then they would believe it. Someone like Paul was exactly on that path, and God opened their eyes. So Calvin says, that's not what we're talking about. He goes, but those who are convinced in conscience that what they repudiate and impugn is the word of God, and yet cease not to impugn it, they are said to blaspheme against the Spirit, inasmuch as they struggle against the illumination, which is the work of the Spirit. So essentially, Calvin says, you take all the knowledge, and you combine that with unbelief, and you have this settled, informed rejection of the claims of Christ, then that is where he puts the category of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Calvin is basically saying, 
There is a line at which a person crosses that they therefore are hardened and confirmed in their unbelief and from which there is no hope. Uh, another young modern theologian, he, he puts it this way. He says, The unpardonable sin is not an accidental, impulsive, or unguarded slip of the tongue. Again, Peter angrily blasphemed Christ when he denied it. So that's not what we're talking about. It's not an accidental, impulsive, or unguarded slip of the tongue. It is deliberately repudiating the truth about Jesus. God responds to such rebellion by hardening the rebel's heart and not giving that person a desire to repent and believe. The sin is unforgivable because God never enables that person to repent and believe. And I think that helps put some definition to this, where maybe it's tricky, maybe we struggle with the sin against the Holy Spirit, because you're like, well, well, show me the line where once you cross it, you've committed that sin. And, and the scriptures choose not to do that. But neither do they say, oh yeah, you, you get hot under the collar, you make a mistake, maybe you wander from the faith for a season of life, well, sorry, no hope for you. No, that is not how the scriptures operate. Obviously, on one level, we're all rebels against God. We're all totally depraved. And the only reason anyone gets saved is because God sovereignly sends his spirit to change our hearts. Those are the theological truths by which we understand how salvation works. But from the human perspective, we make choices, we receive knowledge, and when we repudiate the claims of Christ at that point, then there is a great danger. And so this saying here of Jesus, it, it functions as a wake-up call to the arrogant. Here's the point. It's not a boogeyman to frighten those of tender consciences. This is old pastoral advice, but I think it's straight down the line. I think it's 100% correct. If you're worried you've committed the unpardonable sin, that is almost a guarantee you haven't. Because the fact that you would care about it shows that you are in a right disposition towards God. Uh, those who commit this sin are hardened in their unbelief. So again, one author writes, if you're worried you've committed the unpardonable sin, that is a reliable sin. You have not committed it. If you are ashamed of your sin against God, then you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Instead of feeling hopelessly condemned, keep turning from your sins and keep trusting Jesus. If you are in Jesus the Messiah then there is no condemnation for you. So tender consciences, fear not, seek Christ. He offers full forgiveness. Maybe this category of, oh, I wandered for a little while, or I have a child that's wandering for a little while. Have they crossed the line? Again, I think what you see here with the Pharisees is this settled determination, not just through ignorance, not just through temporary rebellion, not just through bitterness, but a settled final resolve that they will not hear the claims of this Christ, and therefore they are being hardened in their sin and unbelief. God doesn't tell us when a person crosses this line. And so I think it's very wise, especially if you're dealing with people who have wandered from the faith, to maintain hope and to keep praying and to speak a word when able to show the joy of the kingdom of God. And so in these last verses, I won't go through them verse by verse as we've done tonight. I'll just summarize that. Final paragraph, verses 33 to 37. That's Jesus basically calling out 
uh, to these Pharisees to, to turn from their ways. Notice he's still calling them to repent. He's warning them, but even they, not yet, have crossed this line. Hey, make the tree good, and the fruit will be good. This bad fruit you're giving me comes because you're bad trees. But if we can make the tree good, if God's spirit will change you on the inside, then the fruit will be good. So there's the warning in verse 35. You're going to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word you've spoken. That's just not talking about, you know, wasteless chit-chat. Oh, you were talking about sports or you were talking about this. Well, you're going to give an account to God for that one day. No, it's empty words about Jesus. Vain words about his claims. The wrong response to who he is. God says you'll give an account for that one day. So now while there is still hope, make the tree good. Look to the spirit to change you on the inside. And then you will be forgiven of your sins. So let's give thanks to God for his very long suffering mercy. And let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for Jesus who offers the full forgiveness. Every word that we speak against you can be forgiven. Lord, thank you so much. How how many times do we speak angry words, despairing words, wicked words uh, that are sins against you? Sins against your goodness, sins against your wisdom, sins against your providence, sins against your people. Lord, forgive us. But Lord, give us this good, right, holy fear of sinning against the Spirit, of rejecting your program of salvation, rejecting God's purposes in Jesus, and crossing any kind of line of settled and determined resolve against you. Lord, thank you not for confirming us in unbelief and hardening our hearts, but in giving us mercies to taste and see that the Lord is good. So we pray for those friends or family that maybe once knew the name, name the name of Christ and don't, that you would reclaim them, that you would save them, that you'd bring them back from such wandering, that you would forgive them of the words that they have spoken against you. And you would help us as your kingdom people who live under the authority of Jesus, who live in the time of the Spirit, who, who live in this wonderful community and, and family of God to rejoice as your people, loyal to you, sitting under your authority, and following you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.